If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, that'll be the first place we might, uh, might come across the verse that I want to look at. Things are going to be a little bit different this morning, just, just so you are aware. Things will be going a little bit differently. So this being Pastor Appreciation Month, I, asked, I told Jason, Jason, I will give you anything that you want for Pastor Appreciation Month. And he said, Brad... I want you to preach on limited atonement. <laughs> Here we are. We are in the middle, literally in the middle. We are in the third of, of what is called the five points of, of this uh, doctrine. As one man considered these things, this, this teaching about what Jason has been talking about the past two weeks, but I'll be talking about this week with Joseph will be talking about next week and Jason the next week. When one man considered all these things, these, these doctrines of election, he said, the decree, I admit, is dreadful. Nope, next slide. That man was, you can't really see it too well, but that man was John Calvin. The decree, I admit, this is all dreadful. Next slide. But he goes on to say, the decree, I admit, is dreadful, and yet... It is impossible to deny that God foreknew what the end of man was to be before he made him. And foreknew... Oh, I think this is working, but it's not like a 10-second delay. <laughs> because he had so ordained by his decree. So, right, the question is, what, what is it? It isn't what do we want the Bible to say. It isn't what do we wish the Bible would say. It's what does the Bible say. And that's sort of what he's getting at here. It's, it's dreadful. Right? And if, and if you have any... Like, if there's joy in this thought that, that some people are not going to be saved, if there's any joy in your heart about, about that, or any boastfulness, or any arrogance, you are wrong. It is dreadful. But the question is, what does the Bible teach? And as we come to this... This particular aspect of, of these, what is called the five points of Calvinism, <laughs> the, the animosity is particularly acute and focused, right? And there are some people, you know, Floyd asked a couple weeks ago, do you have to believe all this? And there are some people that don't believe just this point. They believe the first two things that Jason preached on, and they'll believe what Joseph is going to preach on, and what Jason is going to preach on, but they won't believe what I'm about to preach on. And in fact, they say things like, we are not into particular love, what it is also called, or limited atonement. As a matter of fact, we consider it heresy. Jerry Falwell, the founder of Liberty University. <laughs> or that some people, for some people, definite atonement is a grim doctrine. A guy by the name of Carl Barth who loved John Calvin, nevertheless called this a grim doctrine, containing horrible blasphemies. John Wesley, which isn't too surprising, considering John Wesley wasn't too fond of Calvin. What is, what is the problem with limited atonement? Like, next slide. I mean, the initial problem is, is just the fact of calling it limited atonement. It automatically puts us on edge, which it should. But there's a biblical problem with limited atonement, a way that the Bible pushes against what is considered limited atonement. And that is the fact of all of these passages talking about the world. Now, I'm only going to mention three 
You should not take it to think that I only know of three. I have 12 down here, but because I love you and care for you. And three hours is long enough. I don't want to add to that. Okay, but there are passages like John 1.29, where John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there are many passages like that. And even more problematic, maybe, for this idea of limited atonement are those passages that mention the world along with a special group of people, a select group of people. Right? Because you know the tricks that Calvinists play with the Bible, how they twist the scriptures and say, well, the world doesn't mean the world, it means the elect, or it means all kinds of people. But there are passages that mention both together, like 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Right, so there, two different kinds of people are brought together. All people, especially those who believe. And just as potent, seemingly against this idea of limited atonement, that Christ only died for certain people, John, 1 John 2.2, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, like I said, I know there are many other passages that I could give you, and, and you know them, right? Because the world, and in fact, what is maybe the most well-known Bible verse of, of all? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So we might say, do you agree with this? Let's start here. The death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete sacrifice and satisfaction for sins. It is of infinite value and worth, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. Do you agree with that statement? Do you agree with that? Yes. Yes. Next. Congratulations, you're a Calvinist. That is from the Canons of Dort. Dork reminds, right, how you remember what this is all about? Dork reminds of Dork. Calvinists are dorks. This is from the canons of Dork. This is, this is the original statement of the Calvinist position. Congratulations. You're all Calvinists. So what's the problem? There are passages that talk about a certain people. And again, because I love you and I care for you and I already have three hours that I'm going to talk, I'm going to cut this down to three verses. But I have a dozen more here and dozens more could be given. There are passages that talk about a certain people. God, Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed <laughs> us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Ephesians 5.2 Christ loved us and gave himself up for us 
a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Right? Christ's death is for us, for his people. So we might say, no one actually enjoys this forgiveness of sins except the believer. According to the word of the gospel in John 3.16, God so loved the world, whoever believes, right? Do you believe that? Oh, back up. Oh, oh. Back up. Very good. Nope, back. There we go. Stop. Do you believe that? That no, right? What, is, what this is saying that, is that no one, no one has eternal life except the believer, right? Do you believe that? Yes. Next, now, congratulations, you are all Armenians. This statement is from the Arcos of Remonstrance. This is the first initial statement of the Armenians. No one actually enjoys this forgiveness of sins except the believer. According to the word of the gospel in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So you're all Calvinists. You're all Arminians. I'm done two and a half hours early. <laughs> we all have plenty of time for lunch. So what do we see? Everyone, Calvinists and Arminians, believe that there is no lack in the worth the value of Christ's death because it is, it is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who died. There is no disagreement about that. So the question is, does the death of Christ save all mankind? But that's the first question we have to ask and answer. Does the death of Christ save all mankind? You have to answer that in your hearts and minds. Is everyone eventually going to be saved? Calvinists and faithful Arminian both say no. I say faithful Arminian because what we find is that Arminianism, there's a tendency to go towards answering that yes. Not all Arminians, and not even most Arminians, but if you take it logically and keep going, you might answer yes. But faithful Calvinists, Arminians, both answer no. They both agree that the atoning work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ is only beneficial, it only works, it only affects those who believe. Everyone, both, unless you believe in universalism, where everyone gets to heaven, Congratulations. Everyone believes in a, everyone, Arminian and Calvinist, believe in a limited atonement. The difference is who does the limiting? Does God do the limiting? Or does man do the limiting? And I'm going to give you, like, this is, next slide, this is from an Arminian. Okay, I'm not putting words into them, their mouth. I'm not, that's a bad way to argue. You know, I, I've studied Arminianism right, for this, and from Arminianists. Arminianists. This is from Terry Mighty and his chapter in uh, The Grace of God and the Will of Man. It is clear in the Bible that Christ's death is universal in sufficiency. It's big enough for everybody, right? What Calvinists agree with. And intention. 
but it is limited in application. This limitation is imposed not by God, but by man. The individual human being created in the image of God with free will must accept the benefits of this atonement. Okay, so, unless you believe that everybody gets to heaven, you believe in limited atonement. Right? There's a limited number of people who will get to heaven. The question is, who does the limiting? Is it God or is it, according to Arminian, Terry, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, Mighty or Meath, is it God or man? So where is the difference? Okay, the difference is an understanding of, of the answer to the question, what does the death of Christ accomplish? What does the death of Christ actually do? In what sense is the death of Christ for the world? Next slide. So the Arminian position is what I didn't show you before, but I tricked you all to believe you're Arminians, is this, that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man, so that he has obtained for them all by his death on the cross, redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Okay, every man, without exception, Jesus Christ has bought, <coughs> bought them and paid for them. Right, their sins are forgiven. They are redeemed. He has purchased that. They just need to believe. So there, there are some problems with this position, with this understanding. First problem, if Jesus has obtained, in fact, redemption and forgiveness of sins, and he has done it for all mankind, why does any man go to hell? Right? If, if Jesus has, has bought them, if he has paid for their sins, is it just for God to send them to hell for their sins that Jesus has bought and paid for? One man asks, did Christ pay for the sins of all unbelievers who will be eternally condemned? And did he pay for their sins fully and completely on the cross? So how do Armenians get around this? One way they get around this is by saying, well, God doesn't send people to hell for their sins. He sends people to hell for not believing in Jesus. Is that how the Bible talks about people going to hell? Yes, not believing in Jesus is included, but it is clear in the Bible that people go to hell because they are sinners and because of their wicked deeds. Verses we'll, we'll see soon. A second major problem is that this does not seem to be how the Bible talks about unbelievers. Right? Is, is this how the Bible talks to unbelievers and unbelievers? Right? You are in John 3, maybe. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but he just needs to realize that Jesus has forgiven and obtained his redemption. No, but the wrath of God remains on him. Does, does the wrath of God remaining on a people sound like Jesus has obtained for you all forgiveness and redemption? Does, does this sound like the way Peter addressed the crowds in the first sermon? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Is this even how the Bible talks about believers in their previous condition before they were saved? Verses you might be able to think of. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived. Right? Children of wrath. This is not how the Bible talks about unbelievers. The Bible talks about unbelievers as under the wrath of God, as dead in sin, not as you're saved, you just need to realize it. Right? You just need to recognize, you just need to recognize who you really are. So that's a problem with the Arminian position. Is that, that Jesus Christ did in fact actually obtain for them. Redemption and forgiveness. Why do they go to hell? And does the Bible talk about them this way? If they have in fact had their sins paid for. So what is, what is the reform position? The response of, of the Calvinists. It was the will of God that Christ, by the blood of the cross, whereby he confirmed the new covenant, should effectually redeem. Christ did something with his death. Effectually redeem out of every people, tribe, nation, and language, all those and those only who were from eternity chosen to salvation and given him by the Father that he should confer upon them faith, which together with all the other saving gifts of the Holy Spirit, he purchased for them by his death. So, so the Arminian says that Jesus has purchased for everybody redemption. He has purchased forgiveness of sins for everybody. They have it. The Calvinist says, out of every tribe, people, and language, God has, has purchased them salvation and the faith which gives them salvation. Effectually done this. Does the Bible talk this way? Look at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. John is looking in heaven. Revelation 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open his seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This might as well be, that first half might as well be 
just a quote of Revelation 5.9, right? I've asked you to turn there and see it, so you, you know I'm not putting words in God's mouth. Right? This is pretty much exactly what this says. You, you ransom, you did it. Effectually redeemed. Out of every tribe, language, and people, and nation, a people for God. <coughs> now turn next to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Now, I know that Israel is at war now, and we're about to read the verse that, that mentions the Antichrist. So a lot of people are going to get excited about this, but let's stay on focus here. <laughs> Revelation chapter 13, verse 7. Also it, the beast, the Antichrist, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. All authority was given the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Except who? Everyone whose name has... No, how are these people further described? Those names who have not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. John says, there is a book written before the foundation of the world. And in that book, there are names. Names of people. And if your name is not in that book, you're going to worship the devil. That book written from before the foundation of the world, describing these people that we heard praise, praising the Lord in Revelation 5, out of every tribe, language, people, and nation. So again, the question, does the death of Jesus make salvation possible for all people of the world? Or does the death of Jesus save people from all the world? The Arminian position is that the death of Christ, in fact, and in truth, paid for, covered, atoned, for all the sins of all the people of the world. So salvation is possible, potential, for absolutely anyone and everyone. But it is certain for no one. Right? There's nothing that necessarily ensures that they, anybody will be saved. It's just possible. The Reformed Calvinist position is that the death of Christ, of infinite value and worth, more than enough to atone for all the sins of the world, actually accomplished and secured salvation for all and only God's people. Now, again, the question is not what we hope the Bible says, what we want the Bible to say. The question is what does the Bible say? As I sort of already alluded to, the Arminian and the Calvinists both have, on their own, dozens of passages. You know, if I wanted to be an Arminian here, I could preach an Arminian sermon, I'm pretty confident, because there are dozens of passages that talk about the world. God loves the world. And if I wanted to be a Calvinist, I'm pretty sure I could preach a Calvinist sermon, because there are many passages that talk about Jesus saves his people. So, you know what? We just simply line up all these passages against each other, let them shoot it out, the dead bodies will fall, and we'll go on our way. And to varying degrees, 
This is the way we've been fighting about it for really the past 1,500 years since Augustine and, and the Pelagians. So what I'm going to quickly do, now that my introduction is almost over, <laughs> rather than looking at one passage in particular, because you know I can look at one passage and distort what other passages might say, I want to try to give us a sense, oh, you can turn this off, thank you, of what the Bible teaches about atonement. So in your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to look now at, at three different passages of, of Scripture. We're going to look at Hebrews 8 and 9, maybe 4 if you count Hebrews 8 and 9 as, as 2, but I count it as 1. Hebrews 8 and 9, then we will look at Leviticus 16, and then we'll look at John 17. In Hebrews 8, the preacher comes to his main point, just like me, right? Right in the middle of it, now we'll come to the main point. Now the point in what we are saying is this, Hebrews 8 1. We have such a high priest, one who is seated in the right hand of the throne and the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So I want us to see from Hebrews 8, these two facts. Jesus is a great high priest. Right? You, you real? I recognize your faces. and You probably have all heard that, that Jesus Christ is our great high priest. We see that in Hebrews 8.1. That's the main point of what we're trying to say here. But I want us to see, secondly, where does Jesus carry out this ministry? A minister in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So we have this dichotomy, this, this what, is, what does that mean, this true tent? Well, if there's a true tent, there's a, not necessarily an untrue tent, but a, a not true tent. And we see that in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Hebrews 8, 5. They serve, the earthly priests, the Levites, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. What is, the true what is the true tent? Heaven. What is, what is the copy and shadow? The tabernacle, the temple. Right? We read verse 5, and I wanted to nail down on this, because we read verse 5 about a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, and of Moses being shown a pattern, and we, we hear the word pattern, right? and I think we sort of think, of those, those nice little model tabernacles that we'll see sometimes in Christian places, right? Those little scale models of the tabernacle, like, or, or blueprints maybe? Like, like Moses was taken up in heaven and he was shown this, this little scale model, like God needed an angel with really small fingers to get in there with the details on some of them. Or God maybe just showed Moses these, these blueprints, these CAD drawings or, or AutoCAD or... Maybe you just hand-drafted the pattern, the model of the temple 
was not something scaled down. It was not a drawing. The pattern of, of the tabernacle on earth was heaven. Verse, chapter 9, verse 11. We see this, this idea carried out, continued. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And verses 23 and 24, Thus it was necessary for the copies, earthly things, of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, these earthly bloody rites, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these, the sacrifice of Christ. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself, the true temple, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What? What am I trying to get at? Okay, often we'll think of, of just as this, of the temple and the tabernacle as just merely predictive. They, they point forward to what Jesus was going to do one day. And they, the temple and the priesthood, the sacrifices do that. They do point forward to Christ. But they also point back, they point upward. The earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle, is a copy of, of heavenly realities that are existing eternally. Right? It, is, it is not just something that looks ahead. It is something that is a, a little picture of, of a previous, a pre-existent reality that that there is a way that God has ordered the universe to function. A way that comes from this throne in heaven. <coughs> what was the tabernacle? What was the temple? What made the temple the temple? It was God's dwelling place on earth. So what was the, what was the temple a model of? God's dwelling place in heaven. The temple is heaven on earth. What happened in the tabernacle? The temple was not merely looking forward to the work of Christ. It was already based on. It was predicated on these pre-existing heavenly realities. So in this discussion of, of the temple, and the, t the tabernacle. The author of Hebrews is focusing in particular on, on one aspect of it, and that is the Day of Atonement. And we see that in verse 13, where how he, he mentions the blood of goats and bulls. That's, that's going to be important. And we see it in verses 24 through 26, where he talks about, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, it was not to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Right? When did the high priest enter in the holy place once a year? The day of atonement. Okay? 
So Hebrews 8 and 9, these, these two things I want you to, I hope, hopefully, see. The real meaning of the tabernacle, the real meaning of, of the temple. It is not just looking forward to Christ, it is what heaven is like. It is the way heaven operates. And this focus on Christ fulfilling this day of atonement. So what happens on the day of atonement? Well, let's now turn to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16. Where we see the day of atonement elaborated. In Leviticus 16, verse, verse, the verse, first 10 verses we see Aaron taking bulls and goats. Which is what Hebrews mentioned. Bulls and goats. Together. Right? Verse 11, Aaron takes a bull for himself. So we have this, this bull and goat. Then verses 15 and 19, through 19. So Aaron sacrifices a bull for himself and the priesthood on this day of atonement. Verses 15 through 19, he takes one goat. Then he shall take the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions their sins he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of the uncleanness no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall make Take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Okay, so Aaron takes one of the goats and kills it, sheds its blood for all the people of Israel. All the sins of all the people of Israel. That's the first goat on this day of atonement. <coughs> Verses 20 through 22. The second goat. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat, the second goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it. All the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. Okay, so Aaron takes a, a bull sheds his blood and cleanses the temple, the tabernacle. He takes a goat, sheds his blood for all the sins of all the people of Israel and atones for it in the tabernacle, in the holy place. He takes a second goat, lays his hand on the goat and confesses, prays to God, confesses all the sins of all Israel and that goat is sent away. 
Okay, so if, if I've, I've read Hebrews correctly, if I've understood Hebrews correctly, that, that what happens with, with the high priest, what happens with the tabernacle, what happens with the temple, Jesus Christ is going to do, because it is a heavenly thing that he does, do we see something like this happening? So let's, look, let's look to John 17. <laughs> I told you things would be a little different today. We've arrived at our sermon text. <laughs> so as we normally do, let's stand together as we read from God's Word, John 17. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, for you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am out of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, just as I am out of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known 
that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You may be seated. By common attribution, this is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And this is a powerful passage. As we try to think about what does the death of Jesus do? It is so powerful, in fact, that, that some will try to say, well, this isn't talking about atonement. This isn't talking about just only the death of Jesus. Because they realize what this passage says. Look at verse 1. How does Jesus locate the time of this prayer? What phrase does he use to locate the time of this prayer? Is it, is it a, an eternal prayer? Now it is an eternal prayer because we're still reading it. But how does Jesus locate the import of it? The time of it? Father, the hour has come. What hour? He locates it in a particular time with a particular relevance. Turn back to John chapter 12. What hour is he talking about? John chapter 12, verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So Jesus locates the fulfillment of this prayer in a particular time. This hour. This hour. This prayer is specifically talking about the death of Jesus Christ and the work of glorification that he is about to accomplish. Verse 2. What are some more truths that we see about Jesus? Who does Jesus have authority over, according to verse 2? Who does Jesus have authority over? You have given him authority over all flesh. Where does he give? Where does he get this authority? Since you, the Father, the Father has given him this authority. What does he do with this authority, according to verse 2? He gives eternal life. Who does Jesus give this eternal life to? According to verse 2. All whom the Father has given him. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, for they have kept your word. Jesus has authority over all people. Jesus grants eternal life to the people God the Father has given him. 
Verse 9. Who are these people? Who are these people that God has given Jesus? Verse 9, Jesus says, I, I could not make it any more clear. I am praying for them. <coughs> Who's them? Who Jesus has been talking about. Verse 2. You have given me. You have given. Verse 6. You gave me. Verse 6. You gave them. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Here, when the high priest, once a year, made atonement for the people, he placed his hands on the head of the goat and said, I pray and confess all the sins of the people. Jesus has to fulfill that. In his great high priestly prayer, Jesus, who is himself the priest and the sacrifice, he is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He lays his hand, he lifts his hands to the Father. And who does he pray for? Father, I pray for all the people you have given me. What I'm about to do, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. verses 15 through 20, we see his, his requests that he makes for them. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And verse 20, it's not just believers then and there, but it is for all believers of all time. I do not ask for these only, these Peter, James, John, Mary, Martha, Mary, Mary, Mary. I do not ask for these only, but those who will believe. Not for these people only, but all those who will believe. Jesus' prayer for them is that they all be one. That they all are with him and see his glory. Verse 24. So, a review. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 8 and 9, we see that the temple, the tabernacle, and, that the, and the priestly ministry did not merely point forward to Jesus... But the tabernacle and the temple in itself represent eternal, heavenly realities, the way creation works. In Leviticus 16, we see that on the Day of Atonement, the highest and holiest day, the day of national repentance and purification, on that day, 
the priest confessed all the sins of Israel. And all the sins of Israel were carried away to be remembered no more. And in John 17, Jesus, when he comes, Jesus, the great high priest, when he comes to that hour of glorification, when he prays the prayer to apply the sacrifice, prays for all the Father has given him, while the rest of the world, his words, are explicitly excluded from these benefits of the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays that everything I'm about to do, Father, in glorifying you, you are glorifying me, this is for the people you have given. Now, I can't tell you how you should feel about this. I can only tell you that this is what, what I think the Bible teaches. I've, I've tried to do I've tried to do very little interpretation. Right? I, I, hope, I hope you haven't heard me say, yeah, this says this, but what it really means is this. I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to do this. I've, I've simply tried to read and point out what the Bible says about what Jesus did, how Jesus prayed. And maybe, I know that in this subject and in this topic, it's hard not to say anything without making people mad or upset, or anxious. So this being 2023, I'm just going to go ahead and say maybe one of the most offensive things that a person can say. I am a boy, and I like girls. I like girls. I like girls with, with long hair. I, I like their... Their happy personalities. I love how they're emotionally attuned to things. I like girls. Yeah, but there are five girls that I really like. I like. Alaya. Mariah, Marissa, Isabella, and Olivia. I like them. Right? I go to work for them. I don't do things that I want to do because I like those five girls. I do things I don't want to do because I like those five girls. I don't have 10,000 books because I like five girls. I don't have 30 bikes because I like five girls. Because I like those five girls. Does that mean I have to be unjust or unfair? or unkind to other girls? Right, because Mike loves his girls. Does that mean Mike, he can't coach other girls? He can't teach other girls because he loves his five girls. No, Mike is, Mike is kind to all girls. Because he loves his five girls. And in fact, if I, if I came home one day and said, you know what, I'm, I'm just gonna start giving all my money to this orphanage for girls. Because, you know, pure religion is, is to, to serve the orphan. I said, sorry. Sorry, sorry, kids. No food for you. I got to love these other girls. That would be unjust. But wait. There's one girl. 
There's one girl that I've promised myself to. That I've promised to be faithful to as long as I live. To never leave. To never forsake. To never say goodbye to until I die. One girl. Does that mean I, I can't love other girls? That I can't be kind to other girls? That I can't be merciful to other girls? No. But it means I can't come home one day and say, well, Abigail, I've decided it's 2023. We need an open relationship. I need to share myself with other women. Say, Brad. I mean, that's, that's nice, but I mean, I think God can love a little bit better than you can. Well, he does love better than me. Look at Hebrews, or Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Is this just an emotional catharsis? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What practical use is this doctrine? It's pretty practical for most of the people in here, and someday maybe for all the people in here. Why do wives honor and reverence their husbands? Why do husbands love and honor their wives wholly, faithfully, completely? Because Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your love for all the world. Lord, we are grateful that your love is not limited to white people, to black people, to yellow people, to red people. We thank you that your love is not limited to Israel, to England, to India, to China, to America. We thank you for the great promise that your eternal plan is that out of every nation, tribe, people, and language, people will praise the Lamb who is 
Lord, we thank you and praise you for making us one of that number. We praise and thank you for the love of Jesus Christ, for the work of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to cleanse us, to purify us, to save us. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us to, to love your word, to love your truth, to submit to it, to respond in humility and obedience to it. We pray that we be strengthened to walk now in the strength which Christ provides. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.